This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text, uh, 2057, or send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, we have a fantastic guy uh, on the line now. Uh, It's Barry Brill. Good morning, Barry. Good morning to you, Rodney. Well, I, I admire you so much because you just... You're the energizer bunny. You just keep on keeping on uh, writing the most insightful and amazing reports on the climate change hypothesis. And you do so soberly and reasonably. And every time I read one, I think that's it. We can all pack our bags and not worry about this anymore, and yet still the madness continues. Well, that's the frustrating aspect of uh, writing on climate change. You put out certain challenges, uh, there's clearly a problem, uh, and there's no response at all. Nobody in authority responds, the media ignore it, uh, and uh, then you'll get another uh, spate of reports about a storm somewhere in the world and how climate change is making uh, the world worse, and you'll hear that a thousand times, and you'll hear no discussion of the issues that have been raised. No. Now, um, we're going to cover off, we're going to see if we can cover off the whole climate change story through you, because I don't know of anyone who's across it quite like you. you Just for listeners, Barry Bull writes erudite reports that um, professional climate change uh, experts uh, take notice of. And when we say experts, experts who uh, counter the narrative or sceptical uh, of the theory that there's, there's a catastrophe about to happen, but he's a very serious uh, researcher in this regard. He's not a dilettante. But, Barry, how did you first get into this climate change business? Because your background, you are a minister way back in the day with Sir Robert Muldoon. Uh, you're a lawyer by training. And yet here you are uh, writing these erudite reports on climate change. How did you get into climate change? Well, uh, right back uh in the early 80s, I was uh, Associate Minister of Science and Technology, and there were already uh, concerns at that time about global cooling. Uh, and there were some suggestions of the possibility of global warming. Uh, that didn't uh, affect me as much as the energy side of things. I was, um, I was involved uh, in the Industry. I was involved in the electricity industry. I was involved as a director of Petrocorp Exploration in the oil and gas uh, exploration industry. Uh, and so uh, when we started running up against constant references to the need to uh, change our energy portfolio, uh, I started taking an interest in that. It was probably around about 2005, 2006, 
there was uh, the supposed to be uh, a complete resolution at the Copenhagen uh, COP uh, of the UNFCCC uh, in 2009. Uh, and so it was about uh, a year before that uh, that I, uh, I went to hear a... Um, a presentation by Professor Chris DeFreitas of Isn't Auckland it? University. And uh, DeFreitas was a skeptic, and he certainly had a convincing story to tell. Uh, and, yes, that got me started. And he was a, I'm trying to think, was he a, what, what, what was his field, Chris DeFreitas? He, he was skeptical. Skeptical about the uh, the whole uh, well, not about the greenhouse gas theory, but about it being more than a relatively trivial contributor yes. uh, to to our climate. Uh, and uh, he was the editor of an international science journal, yes. uh, and in that role, he came under attack from the the climate gate uh, people. Who uh, who worked very hard to have him uh, sacked as the editor, uh, and uh, and they succeeded in doing so. So th- that was a another thing which motivated a lot of us to to get involved because it was a uh, it was an obvious uh, pack attack uh, by so called climate scientists in the US and the UK. It's it was a. Those of us that have been around this issue and been following it for some years um, have witnessed what we're seeing now more generally uh, because climate scientists who were sceptical were deplatformed way back, as you say, 20 years ago. They were being um, uh, dismissed as lunatics and not funded, correct? Yes, that's right. And they couldn't get published in the all of the main journals. I had that same problem myself, uh, where uh, I uh, was a co-author with Christopher Otis uh, on a paper on the uh, New Zealand temperature record. And uh, we uh, sent that off to a journal uh, who set it out for um, peer review. And... Uh, then, uh, obviously, we, the editor came under a great deal of pressure uh, not to publish the article. And so uh, he was fairly candid about it, that it just wasn't in the interest of the journal. Uh, so we had to go to another journal. And there we went through the same process. Uh, and uh, despite having good peer reviews, uh, he had one bad peer review, which Turned out came from Niwa, uh, and uh, so the editor said no, it was too difficult for him to uh, to proceed with this, so we had to go to a third journal. Now, that sort of problem is faced by everybody who wants to record any research that doesn't hew to the narrative, to the central narrative that's, um, uh, that's run by... Well, not by the IPCC, but by climate activists associated mm. with it. Now, so 2005 thereabouts, you started to get into this. And 
you didn't get into it like I do, which is, you know, I just read. You got right into it. I mean, you did original research. What was motivating you to get to the bottom of all of this, to commit such an enormous amount of time and intellectual effort? I think the most notable thing was that so many didn't make sense and weren't addressed, and there seemed to be this deliberate cognitive dissonance where you suspected that everybody knew that this was a uh, an unsupportable statement, uh, but uh, nobody was prepared to say so. Uh, another thing that happened around that time was that um, uh, Lord Lawson, uh, Nigel Lawson, uh, came to New Zealand at the behest of the Business Roundtable and gave a talk which was uh, headed uh, an appeal to reason. Uh, And he went through essentially the argument that we would all be better off if there was some climate change Mm -hmm. uh, and that if there was an extra, say, one degree average across the globe or even two degrees or perhaps three, uh, that... uh, there would be, from an economic point of view, a win-win. Everybody would be better off. Uh, and, uh, and of course, he was able to back that up with, uh, with uh, all the necessary research. Now, Nigel Lawson, you may remember, was the longest-serving chancellor of the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, and, uh, uh, and Margaret Thatcher's chancellor. Uh, I met him when he was in that role, and uh, he was very senior to me, but uh, I was most impressed with him then. So I went to his uh, address at the Business Roundtable, and I was most impressed with uh, that presentation. He subsequently extended that uh, speech into a book, a small book, called An Appeal to Reason, and I read that a couple of times. I still have it on the shelf, uh, and uh, uh, I thought it was very difficult indeed to disagree with what uh, Nigel Lawson had to say. He subsequently established a, uh, a think tank in Britain called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, uh, and has probably been one of the most uh, authoritative voices calling in question the uh, the policies that have been pursued, rather more emphasis on the policies than the science, uh, but have been a very effective check on uh, policymaking in the UK. Unfortunately, Nigel Lawson died only a few months ago. Yes, indeed. But the Global, Policy, Global Warming Policy Foundation carries on. And he, I had the great fortune to listening to him speak to and to uh, having him uh, for dinner. And he was just such a gentleman. And, that was uh, rather fortunate. Yes. No, I felt very, very blessed. Um, and it was because he was, uh, I happened to be in Queenstown and he had wanted to come to Queenstown 
and they wanted him to be, you know, looked after for dinner. And I, I, so I took him out for dinner and um, it was just wonderful. I didn't pester him too much because, you know, I felt like he wanted to be, have a relaxing time, but that said, he was a great conversationalist and, and a, an amazing man. He did tell me that he felt it quite strange that these days his daughter was more famous than he was. Yes, she is. <laughs> yeah, because he said it used to be he'd be walking down the street and everyone would know him, but now everyone knows Nigella. And um, who's that old guy with Nigella? Um, but he he was a, he was a wonderful man. Well, I I have a do not to the same extent. I recall I used to be a greenie, and I worked out that this climate stuff was off off the rails in the late 80s. And I remember it got a boost. I was in the United States for a year studying and I got invited to a conference and I'm going to say it was 91 or 92. And Al Gore had just released his book called Earth and the Balance. And there was a seminar put on uh, where speakers spoke and debunked it. And I greatly recall Richard Lindzen speaking, and you'll be aware that he's, you know, one of the great names of climate skepticism. And he got up and totally destroyed the hypothesis in that calm, cool way of a man who spent his life studying um, climate and what drives it, what we know and what we don't. And we were all of us, group of professors, driving back after this. And I proudly said, well, I don't think this thing's got legs and is anything to worry about. <laughs> because it's clearly nonsense. And one of the professors said, oh no, he said, I think this is gonna, this is, this is, this is, this is gonna get serious. Well, who would have ever known? Because Right from the start, it didn't have a proper basis, Barry. Well, I know. And Richard Lindzen, about that time, Rodney, would have been in his heyday, uh, where he would have probably been regarded as the number one expert yes. in the world on yes. climate science. And he, of course, was a lead author in the first IPCC uh working group one report but he became skeptical uh, the more he went into it the less sure he was of some of the basic tenets uh, and so he had to rapidly get sidelined although as a uh, uh, professor at MIT uh, he couldn't be silenced uh, and uh, he continued to do his own research uh, and uh, I've uh, heard him speak, and I've met him. I've dined with him, as you did with uh, with Nigel Lawson, and uh, he's a giant brain. He's a giant brain. Uh, yeah, a very uh, an extraordinary person. And now, he he has a complete understanding, I think, of this topic. Yes. Now, um, one of the things that. I'm constantly shocked by respectable people 
politicians and so-called scientists who cheat. And they cheat on their argument and they cheat on their numbers. And I am highly offended by that. Like, I love science. I love the pursuit of truth. I love how we've discovered things and the mystery of life and the mystery of the universe and how wonderful science is. And to see science in the newspaper where it's lie, it's lies, literally lies, is something that I'm shocked at. Now, you were associated with a group that did the seven station series in New Zealand and then it became the 11 station series. And I found that the most extraordinary experience of my time in politics. Because you can explain it to us, but you came up with, here's what happens if you don't massage the data you get no change in temperature here's what knee was done jim salinger massage the data and i thought well there must be a very good explanation for this massaging of data (laughs) and as we dug into it well as you dug into it barry there was none walk us through that whole experience please Well, the figures that Neva were using didn't seem to make sense for a number of reasons. They were saying that New Zealand temperature had increased one degree from about 1850 through to uh, 2000. Uh, and yet the world at that time had only increased by about 0.8 of a degree. And they were themselves on their website pointed out that because we are surrounded by ocean uh, and the oceans don't warm as fast as land masses do, uh, that we would be behind the average of the rest of the world. We would expect to be about 03 some would argue more, but Neewa's website said we should be 0.3 less. But if you took the the 0.8 of the world average and took 0.3 off that, we should have seen a warming of half a degree, not one degree. And there's a significant difference between the two. And then we discovered that the one degree had been devised by uh, uh, James Salinger Uh, who hadn't done a scientific paper behind it. He had just put it up on the NERO website. So we wanted to get to grips with that. Um, Another thing I recall is that we were one of the first countries uh, in the 1850s to keep a very good um, record of temperatures in New Zealand. So in the period between 1850 and 1860, we had temperatures across both islands recorded annually and it was all in the Turnbull Library. 
And those temperatures were uh, averaged out across New Zealand at 13.1 degrees expressed in Celsius. Uh, and yet now we're running at 12.8 degrees. Uh, 150 years later, <laughs> so how could we have gone up by one degree? Uh, so we we were unable to. I wrote to the chairman of Newa, I wrote to the chief executive first, and then I wrote to the chairman uh, and re- received no information at all. So I asked you if you could um, put down a uh, question for written answer uh, in Parliament, and you may recall that the answer you got was very evasive. Mm-hmm, I do. So so we then asked follow-up questions, and they were very evasive. Uh, and then it turned out that uh, there was no paper, uh, that it was there was no backing to the figure at all, and so Niwa then gave an under, eventually gave an undertaking in Parliament, but this was after about... Uh, something like 30 written questions uh, over a period of maybe 12 months, uh, they finally gave an undertaking that they would really do the research on the uh, seven-station basis to find out what the temperature was. So they did that research uh, a year, and when it came out, uh, it was riddled with... uh, with errors, uh, it was a, an attempt to whitewash the original paper, uh, and of course it wasn't easy to do that. So they uh, made up uh, a system of massaging the figures, which has never been used by anybody, as far as I'm aware, anybody in the world, before or since. Uh, and uh, and I think they they admit to that. They say proudly that we have found a New Zealand method uh, which is best suited to our conditions. Uh, but of course, when you are simply looking at how to apply statistics to data, there is no New Zealand method. There's a right method or a wrong one, uh, and uh, and and they pursued a wrong one. Now, correct so me if I the, go. Correct me if I go wrong here, uh, Barry, but they had seven stations, that is to say, weather stations in New Zealand going back to, say, 1865 or something, and they had data points for each year, and what they were doing was adjusting those data points so that the supposed the you'd be comparing oranges with oranges. However, as I understand it, when you looked at it and you took the raw numbers, the line was flat. And that the adjustments all shifted the temperature down from what was recorded pre-1940, or most of them down, and most of them up after 1940. So it tilted the curve. Their warming, the one degree warming that Neva was speaking of and still does from the seven station series was entirely an artifact of the adjustments. Yes, entirely. You've got it dead right with the only exception 
that the uh, the tilting point, the balance, was in 1970. Everything okay. there, there wasn't, in fact, there weren't many adjustments made during the 1940-70 period, anyhow. Okay. But there were a couple, and and they were downwards, and then the ones after 2070 were upwards. Now that if you were setting out to tilt the balance, that's exactly what you'd do: push down on the left side and push up on the right side, and that's so, what they did. <laughs> so can you imagine, listeners, our horror? And I mean, I was a very small part of this. The horror of discovering that our scientific institution paid for by the taxpayer, overseen by the politicians, had a data set that said no no, no global warming. But if you do these adjustments, yes, there's global warming. So the whole thing rested on not what was measured but the adjustments to what was measured. So it was entirely an artifact. And so naturally, you'd ask, well, how were these adjustments done? Now, again, if I recall correctly, Barry, and I, I funnily enough, we've got into this, was so it so upset me. As I recall, didn't they say they'd lost the reasons for the adjustments on some old computer system? Yes, that's right. They did. They said that the calculations were on the Victoria University uh, computer system and they had changed their computer and so all the data uh, were no longer available. Uh, and uh, then subsequently the, they said that they had followed a particular methodology which was uh, – Set out in a in a paper which we called RS eighty four that was published in nineteen eighty four, uh, and uh, that was a good methodology, uh, but it was effectively a methodology that pointed out that Selinger's earlier methodology had flaws. So Newis says that they are now applying the nineteen eighty four methodology, and we were able to show that they were not. So at this stage, you conclude that they were making it up. I did conclude that. I'm still quite sure that is the case. And then at some stage, they came up with an 11-station series. But every step of the way was this ad hoc theorizing and fudging of data to produce the conclusion that they were telling New Zealand is the science. Yes, the 11 station uh, series was a, a disaster. Uh, the That arrived at the exact same figure as the seven station series by dint of bringing stations in at a particular year. Like there were 11 stations Many of them were operating since the 1920s, but Salinger brought one in in 1932, another one in in 1947, another one in in 1938, and he balanced these until he got the result that he was looking for. Uh, the, as you 
say that cheating is rife. And you find it in so many different aspects of the topic, because as I recall, you required as part of the confidence and supply agreement in, was it 2009, that the government undertake a fully costed cost-benefit study. Mm. Uh, and then there were, there were, it was effectively confessed that you couldn't do a cost-benefit study, but they'd do some computer modeling instead. You never got your cost-benefit study. We're spending literally billions of dollars on global warming policy now, and yet, even though they tried, because uh, it was a government promise to the ACT Party, they tried to show that there was more benefit than cost. They couldn't do so. No. No. It was spend the billions anyhow. No, I um I'll never forget that experience, Barry, with you. It was a great privilege. And I was unable to spend the time that I would have liked to or not to to have. And um I wasn't actually going to discuss it with you on air, but it's so germane to what we're seeing around the world. And funny enough. I could imagine the Americans cheating, scientists cheating. I could imagine the UK scientists cheating. But I couldn't imagine it happening in New Zealand. And I also couldn't imagine. We had a famous meeting. I don't think you were there. In Nick Smith's office, he was the minister of something or other. And Wayne Mapp was the minister responsible for NEWA. And they brought Niwa in, and we had some on our side, one of whom was a very elderly gentleman um, who since passed away, whose name escapes me, who wasn't allowed into the meeting. I remember that, uh, and the elderly gentleman's name escapes me at the moment as well, but of course he was a climate science of many, many years' experience. So he wasn't, he was literally forbade by Nick Smith and Wayne Mapp from coming to the meeting to question anywhere about this policy. We were allowed in with a couple, and this poor elderly gentleman had came down on the bus to the beehive at night for this meeting. And these are neighbor officials, and Wayne Mapp and Nick, Nick Smith just, well, Bullshitted. There's no other word for it. And you, you you wanted to shout after. And I could never, I've never understood this, Barry. What is in it for them? Why? why? I, I, it's very hard to understand. I, it seems to be like a religion. Yes. Uh, that uh, they have seen the light, uh, and if you haven't, then uh, uh, then uh, there's not much we can do about you. Uh, so we just talk Burn between you. ourselves with those who have seen the light. And those that haven't seen the light will burn at the stake? Well, we, we will burn at the stake. Yes, they must be burned at the stake. Heretics must be rooted out. And, and uh, we have... We have redemption 
by getting rid of fossil fuels and flagellate ourselves on on our back, or better yet, we flagellate we flagellate the poor and we stay we stay in our private jets, and we have our teenage what is that word saints or prophets amongst us, the Greta Thunbergs who can arrive on Earth, who well, the, a, the seer, the prophetess, the seer, the prophetess, and she commands the world as a high school dropout, stupid, comes out with the most inane and stupid things, and the world leaders fawn at her feet and rush to get their picture taken with her. Now, that's a religion. Michael Crichton uh gave a speech in 2003 uh, in which he he said environmentalism was a religion, but the speech was all about climate change. Uh, and he went through so many different aspects of it, which were a direct analogue with Christianity, uh, and uh, concluded that with the decline that we have had uh, Christianity has dominated our uh, thinking about matters that we don't fully understand uh, for a couple of thousand years. Uh, it is now on the wane, and so we have to invent something to take its place. Uh, and it has many of the same characteristics, uh, but now uh, we have climate change because we no longer have Christianity. Now, that speech created a, uh, a whole lot of interest in 2003. I've tried to uh, uh, refer to it in subsequent things that I've written, uh, like op-eds. Uh, but if you do try to mention it, you'll make sure your op-ed is not going to be published, not in our mainstream media. And just for listeners who may not know, Michael Crichton was a, a doctor uh, he was a, well, it's hard to cover off. He was, I think he's the only person ever to have a number one TV series. He did that ER, which was a very yes. popular TV program. He did Jurassic Park. He wrote that book, I think. Am I right? Yes, you're right. Um, he, and he, there was some other movie. So he had, he, he, he had a number also... one. That's why he had a number one best-selling book. He had a number one movie and a number one TV series. The guy was a genius. Yes, and he was a director of the movie uh, and a director of the TV series to start with. And a medical doctor. And a medical doctor, right. It was just, you sort of, you think he was like an Elon Musk figure that you sort of feel they're not mortal, that they have this um, extraordinary ability and like, Back in 2003 or four, he was spotting this. And I'm annoyed at myself because I spent so much time arguing the numbers and arguing the theory. And it's so complicated and the models. And you've done this to the nth degree. And then you realize that's irrelevant because you're talking to religious zealots, actually. 
Uh, yes, that's it's true, and uh, I uh, I wrote a piece really recently in which I was criticising uh, Mr. Luxton, Chris Luxton, who says, "I believe change." <coughs> he doesn't say, "I think climate no. change is happening." He doesn't say. The science has this to say. Instead, he says, I believe. And I heard him do it again a few days ago, saying that the National Party believes in climate change and the National Party is deeply committed to climate change. Now, do you say that about gravity? No. Do you say that about any other aspect of science? So... It's far more a religion, and at least an ideology, uh, than yes, well, and it's getting less and less to do with science. It's a faith. And when you say, I believe, you're saying, you know, this is my cosmology. Yes. Um, and, yes. of course, uh, we always thought that we were talking to scientists who were looking at the data and reaching conclusions, and not only were they massaging the data to get the conclusion that they wanted, even when that was pointed out, Barry, absolutely no shame, no embarrassment, and no consequence. They just steamrolled on and continued. With the support of their board and yes. the support of uh, politicians, yes, uh, and uh, the support of the media, so and it's Mr. very difficult to crack that uh, uh, armor when it's uh, so widespread. Yeah, and and with the media totally on board, we saw a similar thing, of course, with COVID. Um, and it was much more intense because you couldn't question that. Um, you couldn't wonder about whether locking down was the smartest thing. It was just had to be done um, without question. And we're, we're increasingly getting into that sort of world where I actually wrote a piece saying that I felt sorry for the climate change uh, activists because they'd been completely outplayed by the COVID activists who'd actually had shut down, had shut down the economy. Um, but it's 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 that same sort of um, relentless, uh, not brooking of any questioning, and I find it fascinating because I read a lot about World War Two, and even in World War Two, you were allowed to question it. Well, I uh, heard uh, your interview with Elizabeth Rata uh, yes. a week or so ago. I must say it was one of the best things I've ever heard in a podcast. Oh, lovely. Uh, and that explained a lot when she, uh, early in the piece, pointed out that academia got taken over by postmodern theory uh, back from starting from the 70s, but really getting underway in the 1990s. Uh, and under postmodern theory, uh, there is no objective truth. 
Mm. Uh, everything is your truth or my truth uh, or a point of view. Uh, and so this opened it up to there is Matau Rangi truth, truth, there's there's uh, climate truth, there's whatever truth uh, strikes you as uh, probably being right. Uh, and the fact that you can prove something with mathematical proof doesn't isn't enough. No. Science isn't enough. So now there is no objective truth. And uh, Professor Rata went on to say there were two other um, influences. And I remember the next one was Marxist critical theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of Marx, it was uh, class, uh, class war. Uh, but uh, it was based on the the point that the, the the critical factor was that the world is divided into the oppressors and the oppressed. And I think that happened with climate change is that if there is no objective truth, then you can like the idea or not. You can, as uh, Chris Luxton does, believe it or decide to disbelieve it. Uh, there's no objective uh, right or wrong. Uh, And when it comes to climate change, it fits nicely into the idea uh, that we have the third world people and all the people who don't have private jets and don't have motor cars, uh, and they are the oppressed. Uh, And meantime, the rest of us should feel really guilty because we are privileged and we are the oppressors. And I think it's those sorts of arguments, uh, postmodernism, critical theory, that have uh, permeated the climate yes. change argument and left yes. no room for science. Yes, they're, and they've permeated um, every every debate that we have. The third rung uh, that she pointed out was universalism versus tribalism. And um, we certainly see that because if we didn't have colonialism, (laughs) we wouldn't have climate change and everyone would live in balance with nature. Um, The fact that you'd have a world population, I guess, of 500 million or something uh, doesn't seem to figure in this analysis. But it is that view that it's white men that have made climate change too. I suppose uh, it's mainly white men who have denounced it as well. Yes. There are one or two uh, uh, climate scientists uh, from the distaff side, but uh, uh, but the vast preponderance of them are government servants who are uh, white and middle-aged. It's interesting. Uh, it's, 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 it's interesting, isn't it, that, um, we're always on a tipping point. We always have five years or 10 years left, and if we don't act, um, it's over. And we must do this instantly. And you and I can go back 30 years and find the same people, King Charles being one, making exactly these predictions newspapers propounding these same, scientific 
journals propounding this, you get 10 years or 20 years down the track and there's absolutely no embarrassment from them. No, I I read a recent analysis of Al Gore's film, The Inconvenient Truth, which found 27 predictions, which were all 27 were wrong. Uh, he didn't get one right. And yet Al Gore today is still attending WEF meetings and calling for more uh, action on climate change and making uh, a great deal of money out of it uh, without any uh, apology, without any recognition or acknowledgement, just carry on. And as you say, people from King Charles downwards uh, have said uh, we've got five years left or we've got uh, X amount of time, that time's expired, and he just says it again. <laughs> so I, he's not a he's he's not a fool. He knows it's he knows it's stupid. He doesn't anything now. Now, yeah. why does anybody do that? Well, it, people do that sort of thing when they in religious, um, yeah. in the service of religious beliefs, but not normally. And I can recall being called the first time a climate change denier, and being horrified because it's like. That's not an argument. And this abuse that they, the proponents of these wacky ideas throw around is actually how they win. They're, they're very clever, like Marxism, is very clever psychologically, isn't it? Extremely clever psychologically. Well, I think it's got, yes, it started being clever and it's, now I had 30 years of polishing and refinement. And yes. uh, uh, and now, of course, it's being taught uh, in all the schools. Yes. Uh, it's been taught in the universities for some time. So you have uh, people who are say, under the age of uh, 35. Uh, they learn it at university. They've never heard it questioned because there's nothing in the media, nothing permitted in the media. So the combination of the academy, uh, the media, uh, and uh, uh, the teaching profession, when I say the academy, I mean teaching all the way down now, right down to junior schools, uh, are now teaching climate change and encouraging marches and strikes and so forth. Uh, youngsters are learning that they have no future because the world is going to disappear in a fiery ball where we they hear the warnings you've only got five years left or whatever um, I I'm not sure that there's any way in uh, there's a, a lot of those people I'm saying 30 30 year olds say uh, who could probably be persuaded that there's no substance in this at all and that a lot of it is cheating if they could just hear the argument. Well, I, they I, had, I, totally... had a, <laughs> I had a depressing experience of this, Barry. I had a, a friend's son and at high school, he was a wonderfully bright kid who you'd sit with and 
discuss all things with reason and critically. And his dad is one of us, which is to say an old white man who has got his critical faculties on. Now, this young boy succeeded very well at school, went off to university and did engineering extremely well and came out with an honours degree. And I had occasion to have dinner with him and prompted by his dad, I now re- I realised afterwards, he and I ended up in a discussion about climate change. Now, what had happened to this bright young boy was he'd become zombie-like. It was the most distressing experience because I remembered him when he was 17 and now he was 21 and all he could do was make a series of assertions this was the true and the correct way of looking at it when I queried him on his assumptions or argument I got back that this is what his professor had said and the professor is the expert in this, that, and the other thing. And when I persisted, he just got angry, very, very angry, and ended up walking away. Now, what distressed me about this was here is a bright kid who had gone to university and hadn't learned how to argue or to think critically, or how to handle a counter-argument with, oh, I hadn't thought of that, or no, you've got that wrong. No, all he could do was cite his professor, get angry, and walk away. And that's on matters of science with an engineering student. Isn't That was the most shocking experience. Yes, so he's become a propagandist himself rather than a, a taking a thoughtful approach to it, well, rather than saying, this is what the professor said, I've got no reason to disbelieve him, what do you say? Yeah. He didn't take that attitude at all, which he would have about probably just about any other technical subject, but not this one. Well, it's it's that post, it's that, postmodernism or critical theory where there's no truth um there's no basis for argument and they haven't learned it and of course they're working very very hard to not expose these kids to a contrary view Well, I've had a better experience in uh, right. Tell me. talking Tell me to up. them. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I have uh, that, well, for one thing, it might be politeness. Uh, my grandchildren and others uh, give me a hearing uh, and try to, to argue it. Of course, they have very little information. So as soon as you start putting some 
hard facts on the table, they say, well, we uh, we can't uh, comment on that because, uh, you know, we haven't even thought about it for five years uh, and, uh, and we just don't know. So it's quite hard to get them over the hurdle to the point where they say, well, take your word for it or we'll Google it or we'll do something. Uh, and so I'm not saying that they uh, they 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 change their beliefs, uh, but they are surprised, I think, to hear that there are arguments out there to the contrary because they weren't aware of that before. Isn't that in itself amazing? It is, and that's that's the most frustrating part. People should at least know that there's a dissident point of view, even if they regard them as lunatic French. But there is another <laughs> point of view. <laughs> well, one of the things that I have learned, and I mean, uh, Nigel Lawson and Richard Lindzen and your good self are wonderful exemplars because the thing I've observed over my life is nothing moves you more even though it may not move you at the time of respect and politeness in a debate and the mere fact that you can respectfully discuss something counts for something and the fact that the other side just get name calling and abusive and I'm thinking of Nick Smith and Wayne Matt in particular, on that particular night, tells you something about the strength of their argument too. And I always think that your grandchildren will go away and say, "Well, you know, the thing about Granddad was he did, he did, he did have an argument, and he wasn't rude about it." And it makes you think. Um, so I, I do believe that we have to model good behaviour, and it's what we're trying to do, Barry, with our radio station with Reality Check Radio is like have polite discussion and debate ideas and let people make up their own mind, which isn't a bad way to go, right? Absolutely. I I think the the biggest of all threats uh, is the threat to free speech. Uh, yes. And I'm sure I uh, <laughs> I don't need to, to lecture you on the topic, but um the uh, it does seem to be attacked from so many different angles. Uh, almost every month, there's a new approach. There's a disinformation group. There's our internal affairs department. There's there's somebody who is highly motivated to uh, provide a censorship system. Uh, and if they keep battling away, you know, I feel that the the walls may fall. Oh, I agree. And, I mean, the interesting thing, Barry, is, is that they start off by saying, oh, we know we're against hate speech. But you see, you and me having this discussion, this will quickly become hate speech because it's harmful. It'll be triggering people who um, don't like counter ideas, but it'll be harmful in that we're undermining society's effort to counter climate change. And that would yes. be enough to have us, you and me, shut down from having this conversation, just like Dr. Don Brash 
ex-governor of Reserve Bank, ex-leader of the National Party, ex-leader of the ACT Party, could be deplatformed at uh, Massey University for health and safety reasons. Yes, yes, it's absurd. So, um, so I, we, well, if Don Brash can be deplatformed, I know who, who can get in. Uh, who only can get somebody in? who's got several ticks of good housekeeping. Mm. So, um, but I tell you one great thing. I, I had a wonderful evening with Paul Brennan, who's our breakfast host. And he said the most cheery thing, and it stayed with me for since, and it'll stay with me forever. And he explained that we will win. And he said the reason that we will win is that we have humanity. And he says by that, he means that we respect individual people as individuals. And he says it's most evident with the fact that we can laugh and that we are joyful. And I've thought about that hard, Barry, ever since, because we can have a giggle. We can laugh. Uh, we can be. We are very respectful. But my goodness, the people that we're up against, those climate change zealots, those greens, those politicians, those journalists, it's like dealing with the Chinese Red Guards. There's not a lot of fun or humanity in them. No. And, well, I, I think humanity will come through at, in one way at least is that um, we are now getting to the point in the climate policy area where the climate policies are not just spending taxpayers' money by the billions, which people don't feel directly, but now we are talking about people having to spend money in their homes. We're talking about people having to pay taxes on their mm. on their utes. Uh, mm. It is coming down to people beginning to realise that this is going to cost them their standard of living. And it's happening more in some other countries than it is here, although it's starting to happen here. Uh, and that has led, I think, to what uh, Muriel Newman wrote as the uh, the awakening, uh, in that when people start to resent a policy that's costing them money and doing them, and they're getting nothing in return, uh, they start perhaps for the first time to look back at all the things that they always knew weren't true, mm. uh, but they've gone along for the ride, but they can't afford to keep going along for the ride indefinitely. No, and I... the the cost of this net zero by 2050 uh, seems to be uh, uh, widely recognised to be uh, trillions of dollars, uh, more than every dollar spent on health and education in the world. Like you take every government budget in the world, what they spend on health and what they spend on education and what they spend on police. You can add them all together and they'll be spending more on climate change than the whole lot combined. Now, can we do this? Can we really see this through? Uh, bear in mind that the that nowadays the uh, climateers say that the the worst that's going to happen is we're going to get to 2.4 degrees by 2100. 
Well, now the target, the Paris target is two degrees. And that's saying 90% of the promises to get to net zero by 2050 are not believable. Uh, there's only a handful of countries who will achieve it, including New Zealand, uh, and 90% of them will not. And therefore, instead of being under two degrees, we will be 2.4 degrees. Well, a few years ago, if you had been told that global warming was going to produce 2.4 degrees, you'd have thrown your hat in the air. That would have yeah. been regarded as a great victory. We've been told six degrees. Yeah, and there's a world of difference. But and bear in mind that two degrees is as the imprimatur. Two degrees is okay, and we might go to two point four. So we're talking less than half a degree by the end of the century. Now this is as trivial and minute as the mind can contemplate, and yet we are being told we must spend not billions of dollars but trillions of dollars. Uh, to make it to get that last point four degree in the bag, and for religious reasons, um, as we've feel now, it's it's um, and the cost is to be carried by everyday people, and there's nothing more sickening than to see these private jets fly into Davos or wherever and have a great conference, and then fly home. And this conspicuous consumption of these celebrities who, <coughs> excuse me, who are telling Nana to, you know, turn her heater down to save the planet and pricing her so that she has to turn her heater off. It is truly, truly disgusting. But I think you're right. I think we're hitting harder times economically we're hitting tougher times there's a growing skepticism across racial issues uh, gender issues climate issues uh, everything COVID. covid everywhere you look there's a skepticism growing and it's just gonna like they talk about tipping points there's gonna be a point where everyone says no no I, i'm not putting up with this crap any longer and woe betide there'll be you know and we only can hope barry that they're swept out peacefully yes well uh i think there's reward for party here and elsewhere and it may not be here it doesn't look like it's going to be here who effectively says this has been exaggerated, we will mm. do our share, we have signed an agreement, we will uh, undertake a common sense rational program which is justified by cost-benefit studies. Now, the cost-benefit studies, now this is something I, I don't think is known by many people. There's been many cost-benefit studies done by uh, these uh, coupled computers. They put climate computers and tie them into economic computers, and they are highly complex, and they spit out uh, the, uh, the costs of future uh, changes in climate. There was a, a man called Nozick, 
born, who was more or less the father of this process. Uh, and then in 2018, he was given the Nobel Prize in economics. So this is the, if there's any way the world can honour one uh, scientist or academic over others, it's with a Nobel Prize. And it's Norsbaum is the only person who has ever received uh, a Nobel Prize or any other award for that matter for climate economics. Now, Norsbaum says that until we get to three degrees above pre-industrial levels, climate impacts will be net benefits. That until we get above three degrees, we are going to be better off with the warmer world. Now, we're only at one less than 1.1 at the moment. So... <laughs> We can keep going, we can do it twice as much as that, and we can get up to three degrees, and we're still on the right side of the ledger. But once we get over three degrees, then it starts to go downhill really quickly. Now, that's what this guy called Nussbaum, this Nobel laureate who knows more about it than anybody else in the world, and that's what he says. That's what his combined computers say. Uh, and uh, yet you never hear it spoken about. Usually a noblest can get a hearing. He, In his speech in Stockholm, in which he uh, uh, accepted the, the prize, uh, he referred to it and said he knew how unpopular it was. But of course, it's still his opinion that we'll be better off until we get to three degrees. And he's a climateer, to use your great phrase. He definitely is. Uh, he's a professor at Yale, and mm. he's started in the early 1990s trying mm. to uh, prove how bad climate was. Mm. Uh, and uh, he and John Toll in uh, the UK, uh, there's been three major figures. Uh, in 2009, John Toll wrote a paper in which he uh, summarised all of the findings uh, up to that point. Uh, and the findings were that the uh, that there was net benefit until you got above three degrees of warming, but there was incremental disbenefit. In other words, it stopped accumulating good things after about 2.5 degrees. Uh, and uh, but we were still on net. We were still ahead of the game until after three degrees, three point one degrees. He found. So that was John Toll in two thousand and nine. Uh, then there was a big effort to uh, to discredit John Toll. Uh, in the end, he resigned from the IPCC, where he had been their their principal uh, economic input. Uh, but then his competitor Nosbaum says who gets the Nobel Prize and says in accepting it that he still thinks that we will be better off up to three degrees. Now, when you contrast that, and that's a fact, I know it's an opinion, but it's an opinion, it's a fact that there is the opinion of the world's most authoritative uh, person who has investigated this area. 
Then you go to the other side and you find children being taught that if there's even one degree of additional uh, warming, that the, their lives uh, will be curtailed. Yes. There are people who say we won't have children because we won't bring children into this world uh, which is going to start to boil. Uh, and it is so contrary to what we're told by the experts. Yes. And yet you won't and, read it in the media. And then w we had the example in Christchurch where they were sort of not allowing vast areas of Christchurch near the sea to be developed or built upon or put a shed upon on your property because of um, sea level change. And when you looked at it, um, they used that, I think it's called, correct me if I go wrong, Barry, the RCP 8.5, which is they run these scenarios for the IPCC, and they have one that is so fanciful that even the IPCC author says, you know, this is just fanciful. But that's the worst case scenario by assuming everything turns south and that's the one that's determining whether you can extend your house or put a garage on your property. That, that I think, is, is utterly irresponsible. Um, RCP 8.5, it means radiation concentration pathway. It's a, it's a theoretical concept which provides an upper bound of what is the worst thing that anybody can imagine. Uh, and that comes in the form of uh, radiation in watts per square metre increasing by 8.5. Now, that uh, is just a scenario. It never was regarded as having any high probability, but it was picked up by uh, those who would like to shock, uh, those consultants who would like to have more work, uh, and used as the centerpiece of their of their work, and the engineers who do most of the work for um, local bodies on sea level rise around New Zealand invariably say here's here's what might happen, and they use RCP eight point five. Now, the United Nations doesn't use eight point five, not anymore. It did, but for nearly two years now. United Nations has stopped using 8.5. We just heard last week that President Biden's White House is working on a new um, social cost of carbon, and it's taken out 8.5. Uh, the uh, Professor Miles Allen, in his visit to New Zealand, uh, said uh, that I wouldn't use it for policy making, and yet we in New Zealand use it for policy making. And so why is that the case? It's just that great question, isn't it? And, it's, and you and I sort of can hypothesize that if you're a, an engineering consulting firm, um, you never get punished for going overboard on safety or and you never get punished for, you know, what's that word, creating the most extreme sort of risk-free risk scenario. It's just incredible. And yet everyday people are carrying a terrific cost because of that 8.5. <laughs>
Well, they, they even say that risk management requires you to take the worst case uh, scenario where uh, nobody in any other context has ever contended that you take the most un- least likely outcome mm. and uh, and plan your future on the basis of the least likely outcome. Uh, well, and yet, climate change, you can. Climate change, you can. Barry, we're talking with Barry Brill. You're, he's um, I, Barry, I hope you will come on a, a more often because this is just the topic of the day and how it's affecting us. And it's illustrative of so many other topics that we're confronting with. And you and I, because of our exposure to climate change, became aware that science, so-called, could get way off course, that great government departments could get way off course, that governments could get way off course. And we experienced that. And once you've gone over that cliff, as it were, of, what is it, disillusionment, scepticism, because I couldn't believe, Niwa, I, I still can't, that they could so brazenly shamelessly mislead us and even when it's pointed out to them they just have a sort of giggle and carry on i i lost all trust in um figures that we should be able to trust you know people that we do put our trust in you're you're sitting there as a as a homeowner and you put your trust in experts and their predictions and they have such a consequence and you and i experienced a loss of trust big time right yes um hugely and of course it's everywhere you'll be observing the same thing in the legal profession with them wanting to sign up to the principles of the treaty even though the legal profession can't explain what they are Yes, uh, there's now a move uh, calling for submissions from members of the Law Society on the proposal that the Law Society have a climate change policy. <laughs> uh, and what it's got to do with lawyers, uh, well, I suppose they have a cosmology as well. Yes, well, Barry, Brill. Uh, you're a wonderful human being. You're a great researcher. You've been a wonderful supporter of truth. And um, I very much thank you for coming on our show today. I hope that you'll come back. I hope you enjoy our discussion. And I hope you appreciate what we're doing here with Reality Check Radio is trying to have that polite discussion that we can't seem to have anywhere else. Well, thank you, Rodney. There you go. You're on Reality Check uh, Radio. Uh, Send us a text. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text at 2057. You might want to contact uh, Barry if you do. Send me a text and I'll pass it on to him. Uh, Email is inbox at realitycheck.radio. He really is uh, a total gem who keeps working and doing the most erudite of studies. You would have heard him on the methane issue and how that's being a shocking miscalculation to New New Zealand's detriment, Uh, and I believe making headway. So 
Stay tuned. Rally Check Radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.